Hello, this is Jim Wallace, and you're listening to The Soul of the Nation, a podcast about how our faith should shape our politics and not the other way around. This week on Soul of the Nation, we are bringing you something a little different. It's a speech I delivered at Villanova University on Martin Luther King Jr. Day in January. The title of the speech is The Fierce Urgency of Now on King's Call to Build the Beloved Community. I still love that term so much. As I said at Villanova, in our own time of dangerous political polarization, creating a beloved community can seem impossible. It will be difficult, but it is not impossible, and it will require all of us. I hope you enjoy my address, which draws on my own experience of crossing racial barriers in Detroit, where I was raised. Thanks for listening, and as always, blessings to you and blessings upon the soul of the nation. So let's talk about what Mark started us out with, this most important and long-standing idea of the Reverend Doctor, Martin Luther King Jr. One he began talking about as early as 1957, and continue speaking about all the way to his death in 1968. Its vision continues to inspire millions of people who, like me, have been deeply impacted by both his moral imagination and his courage. So you need both. One thing to imagine, another to do it. He put those together. I know that idea of community central, integral to Villanova, that you want to do. I love the way that you also admit that harm has been done. It's all Jesus said, you'll know the truth and the truth will make you free. The opposite of that means you don't know the truth, you're captive. So only by seeking that truth do we get to a different place. So thank you for that. In their book, Search for the Beloved Community, the thinking of Martin Luther King Jr., Ken Smith, and Iris F. write this. The concept of the Beloved Community can be traced through all his speeches and writings, from the earliest to the last. In one of his first published articles, he stated, the purpose of the Montgomery bus boycott, his first campaign, way back, he said, is reconciliation, redemption, and the creation of the beloved community. Way back, first campaign, he started with that. And as he said, King said, desegregation is essential, but not sufficient. Essential, but not sufficient, meaning, in his words, a society where men and women are physically desegregated, but spiritually segregated, where elbows are together and hearts apart, it gives us social togetherness and spiritual apartness. It leaves us with a stagnant equality of sameness rather than a constructive equality of oneness. Here, so a superficial talk of integration. Without that depth, it's going to be insufficient. That means we are required to not only fight the laws that continue 
to segregate and dehumanize African Americans. We also have to cross the lines that divide us. Cross those lines. That is what it takes to build the beloved community. As Trappist monk Thomas Merton once said, everything is about relationships. Think about that. Everything, good or ill, is about relationships. Now these days, we may hear about the beloved community, hear this talk from Mark or from me, and it's often presented as a far-off ideal, right? I don't get the sense that people know how to exactly build it. They believe in it, but don't know how to build it, right? We can believe in stuff, but let's figure out how to build what we believe. They're just kind of beliefs that hang in the air. So King said it is an ideal, but more than that, he meant it to be a practical reality, something that we all build together in tangible ways that you can see and feel and know. In our own dangerous political polarization, our time, and hostile, we don't, not just divisions, they're hostile divisions we face, in which a call to build a wall becomes a political rallying cry? Really? Creating a beloved community can seem like an impossible dream. And to be clear, it will take effort and sacrifice, and I come back to the word courage, to make that happen. So I believe it can be done if we are willing to cross these lines that divide us. So I want to share, start tonight, a little bit about the lines I've crossed in my own life and work. Let me say that racism is America's story. It's America's story from the beginning. Now each of us has our story that is part of the American story. So the first paper I require for my students this semester is to write that story, their own story. Their own story of race in America. Only by dealing with our own stories can we change the big story. Okay? So my first conversion, I'm from an evangelical tradition, and boy, we have a lot of conversions. All the time, all over the place. So my first conversion came when a revival preacher came into our church on a Sunday night and pointed his finger, it felt like right at me. And he said, with fire and brimstone, he said, if Jesus came back tonight, your mommy and daddy would be taken to heaven and you would be left all by yourself. It got my attention. All the unsaved kids, as we were called back then, had to sit in the front row. And the front row in a church is where I think the closer you are to a sermon, the more impact it will have in your life. That's why in most churches, front rows are always the empty rows. So I was unsaved and getting up in years. I was six. <laughs> and I realized if what he said were to happen, that I would have a five-year-old sister to support, right? So I asked my mother how to fix this thing, and to her 
credit my caring mother, reassured me Christianity was not about the wrath of God, but that God loved me and wanted me to be his child too. That sounded better. So I signed up. But my second conversion, and the one that has stayed with me and continues to change my life, as conversions are supposed to do, came later when I was a teenager. Now, I was born and raised in Detroit, Motor City, Motown. And about the time I was about 16, I began to listen to my city, read the papers, hear the news, and have these conversations with adult people for the first time. And some very big questions emerged for me and began, I began to feel something was wrong, very wrong, in my city, my country, and my church. Something big was wrong. And then I realized very soon that the people in my white church, white school, white neighborhood, didn't want to talk about it. They just didn't want to talk about it. I remember the questions I asked, like, life in white Detroit is very different from life in black Detroit. Why is that? Or I hear about people and families who are poor, even hungry, in our city, who don't have enough jobs or good jobs, who live in bad housing or rough and dangerous places, and many who have family members in jail. It's what I hear, it's what I read. I had no experience with any of that. I didn't know anybody who had any of that going on in their lives. So how come others do have this stuff in their lives just a few short miles or blocks from where we live. I hear there are black churches. How come we have never been told about them or visited, never been visited by them? How come? And I remember the answers from my white world and church were these. You're too young to ask these questions. When you get older, you'll understand. Or we don't know why it's this way either, but it's always been this way. And I got one honest answer, which said, son, if you keep asking questions like this, you're gonna get in lots of trouble. And that proved to be true. So I realized I wasn't gonna get answers in my white world. I wasn't gonna get them. So I decided to travel outside my world, to make my little pilgrimage to another world to find the answer. So I say to my students, and I'll say to you, trust your questions, always. Trust your questions and follow them to wherever they take you. Don't stop until you get the answers. Trust them. Don't anybody tell you they're not good or real. Trust your questions and then follow. That's what I did. So I took my naive white boy questions into what we called the inner city back then, trying to find out why black Detroit seemed so different from white Detroit and why we were so separated, even in our churches. Why was that? I needed money for college, so I looked for jobs that would place me alongside young black men in the city of Detroit 
who might have some answers to my questions. In those jobs, I began to hear life stories, very different from my life story, but stories that would finally change my life story. I went to black churches, I just showed up. <laughs> just showed up. But from the beginning, there were very generous and patient answers to pretty obvious questions. And as I more listened to them, I thought, this is what I, I thought Christianity was supposed to be. This sounds like what I thought it was supposed to be. But I realized soon that to be a black Christian in America in Detroit was very different than being a white Christian. So perhaps the greatest epiphany, that's a word some of you might or might not know, January 6th is the beginning of epiphany every year, which is when the insurrection in my town happened. We actually have sunrise service, a number of us that morning this year, faith leaders, and talked about the epiphany, which means a realization, a revelation of something you didn't know before. So on epiphany, day of epiphany, first one, the insurrection happened, also an epiphany, you might say. But my greatest epiphany came when a new friend who was a fellow janitor and elevator operator, that's the old time we had elevator operators back in my day, wanted to take me home for dinner to meet his, his family one night. His mother responded to a discussion we were having about police in Detroit and how the interactions of white police with black Detroiters was creating confrontations, incident after incident. The famous 1967 riots or rebellion were because always of a police incident, always. So we were talking, he and I, and his mom was listening. Here's what she said. So I tell my children, if you ever lost, can't find your way home, and see a policeman duck under a stairwell, hide behind a building, wait till he passes, and then come home on your own. I was deeply struck by her words, and my mom's words echoed into my head, which she taught us five kids. She'd say, you ever lost? Can't find your way home? Look for a policeman. The policemen are our friends. They'll take you by the hand and bring you home safely. Loving mothers who gave very different advice to their kids, if they're black or white. Two mothers, two cities, two worlds. Now we learned that while Butch and I were born in the same city, that we lived in different countries as did our families. The more I listened across those lines, the more I learned that that different standard applied to everything else too. Everything else too. Across that color line in Detroit, I found a different world. One still waiting to be fully and safely and freely included in America. 
Now, I've realized over the years that most of my mentors have been people who, in their own ways, also crossed those color lines. Uh, white people who made their own pilgrimages in the black community or black churches to figure out what's going on. Or black mentors who ventured into our world of structures and policies and white America to try to change things, make them different and better. And I learned this. I learned this, and this is the key, that it's proximity, not arguments, that most change us. Proximity, not just arguments and books and lectures, it's proximity to people and places that we haven't known before. And teach us white people the work that must be done in our own community. Now, I'll just say to you as students, uh, my worldview has always been most changed, most shaped by being in places where I wasn't supposed to be, or with people I was never supposed to know or listen to or certainly become friends with. And I learned in these new places and relationships that racism is more than just personal. It's structural. Let's compare Butch's family and, and my own. So my father, James Wallace Sr., graduated from college, was commissioned in the US Navy, and got married all on the same day. Busy day. They were trying to get soldiers into the Pacific where he went and to Europe in the Second World War. So they're pushing them all out. And when, when he got back, when he came home, like all other World War II veterans like my dad, his family, our family, was eligible for two things. FHA loan for our first house and a GI Bill to pay for all your education. Loan for a house and payment for education. So that meant in every house in my neighborhood of Redford Township, next to Detroit, was a three-bedroom ranch house, every house, led by, headed by, in those days, a GI like my dad. But no black sailors on my dad's ship in the Pacific got either of those things, FHA loan or a GI Bill for their education. No one, no GIs anywhere who fought around the world got those huge benefits for housing and education, which is what makes families middle class. Housing, education. My government made me middle class the biggest affirmative action program in the history of America. Which made my neighborhood, my school, and my church all white. That was the intention to make us all white. Now, in my house, racist jokes weren't allowed. My parents said they're Christians and they wouldn't do that. But the deeper issues never got discussed or understood. 
So racism, I learned, shaped everything from voting rights to civil rights, economics, education, policing, criminal justice, the safety of your kids, and who you go to, school, who you go to church with. So, you might ask, where are we now? I mean, is the incremental progress we've made enough? Most whites, I don't think it is, or it should be. Most black people I talk to, yeah, they don't think so. They don't think so. White folks say, slavery is in the past, right? And didn't the civil rights movement, Rosa Parks and God King, didn't it fix all this, right? So why can't we just put this issue of race behind us now? Can't we just go on about our lives and never have to cross this color line? Can't we stop asking these questions? No, we can't. Because now more than ever, this America's original sin, which is a human hierarchy based on skin color, still lingers, continues, or as one of your former speakers here said, Brian Stevenson, it evolves in his area of criminal justice. Jim Crow is now wearing a suit instead of sheets. And now I think Jim Crow is making a final comeback, a final comeback to prevent a united democratic future. Now I want to share with you the new strategy of white supremacy in modern times. I want to share it in a single sentence. Right, I think John and I write this one down. Their strategy is to prevent our changing demography from changing our democracy. We say it again. They can't finally change all the demographic shifts going on. They can try, they are trying, but they finally can't change our demography. So they want to prevent changing demography from changing our democracy. It's a commitment still to white minority rule. And by any and all means necessary. Covert and overt voter suppression. We can talk about this in the question time. Uh, racial gerrymandering, where districts don't pick candidates, candidates pick districts, turning it all around. Uh, restricted immigration. Election denial, electoral corruption, manipulation, judicial bias all the way to the Supreme Court when all else fails. When all else fails, promotion of political violence, as we saw on January 6th. And the threat of all those is more to come. So I want to say tonight that this is nothing new, really. Uh, today's racism is the resurgence of an old ideology combined with the return of an old heresy. The old ideology, I call it the false white gospel. The gospel of what we call now, you hear it in the news, white Christian nationalism. That's a resurgence of an old, old heresy that was a long time. It's coming back, and the name, think about it, the name spells the heresy. First of all, it's white. I mean, the gospel message 
which you have heard about here at Villanova. The gospel message is perhaps the most inclusive, welcoming, diverse message on the planet. This is white. Christian, they say, but not Christian meaning service, but Christian meaning domination. We're in charge. This is for us, Mr. We get to rule. And then nationalism, I mean, my goodness. Uh, last I checked, Jesus' Great Commission said, go into all the world and make disciples of every nation. Nationalism? Really? White Christian nationalism doesn't cross lines. It creates, it seeks to divide us, leading the country on a path toward what I would call our modern day political trajectory, which is inspire fear, which leads to hate, which results in violence. That's our political trajectory now, fear to hate to violence. So white Christian nationalism defies what Jesus says about loving our neighbors and even our enemies. Yesterday in my class at Georgetown, we took up the Good Samaritan parable. No, you've all heard the Good Samaritan parable. And the point of it isn't to uh, let's all volunteer more and take some spare time and help somebody out. Jesus is talking about a Samaritan who was an other, as they would say, to the Judeans. The Judeans didn't think there were any good Samaritans. Right? We keep away from them. They're mixed race, dangerous, unhealthy. Stay away. But one of these Samaritans comes across this man beaten on the road, and after a priest and Levite walked by, I think they were going to priest and Levite meetings. You know, they had important religious gatherings to which they had to be on time. But he's the one who stops and says he had compassion. And he takes care of this man alongside the road. His time, Jericho Road was a crime scene. To help there means you're risking something. And he did. King said, the priest and the Levite asked the question, what will happen to me if I help this man? King said, the Samaritan asked, what will help happen to this man if I don't help him? He reversed the question. So what that story tells us is your neighbor, the one Jesus calls your neighbor, probably doesn't live in your neighborhood. Your neighbor is outside your neighborhood. And Samaritan's crossing boundaries, crossing lines. And the lawyer asked Jesus in the story, how do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus, well, I think you know that. You're a legal expert. It's in the law. Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And the lawyer says, okay, who is my neighbor? Now, actually, it was a Washington lawyer. Because I know that tone of voice. It wasn't, who is my neighbor? How can I? It was exactly, who is my neighbor? How can I res restrict these obligations? And he tells this good Samaritan story. Your neighbor's outside your neighborhood. So in this fiercely and now violently divided nation, 
that you were in and growing up in as a new generation. This is your world now. The soul of a nation, as some say, is really at stake in all these battles. And I think white Christian nationalism is the chief obstacle to multiracial democracy in America. That's what I think. Now, in Philadelphia, there's all kinds of stuff going on too. School boards, elections, city councils. This isn't just Washington, it's happening all over the country, everywhere we are. It's what we teach in schools, what's happening in communities, in our congregations, who we vote for up and down the ladder. Uh, and Jesus says, without the truth, you remain captive. So those who are saying, I don't want to teach so much about slavery and racism. I don't want my kids to hear all that. They'll feel like, they'll feel uncomfortable. They'll feel like they're responsible for slavery. Um, what they're really saying is it's okay to lie to our kids. Parents who would say, don't lie to your kids, want to say, deny the truth, which means to lie to your kids. Now, I think my experience with, with uh, my, my, my children, my sons, with all the kids I coached in Little League Baseball, with all my students, is when they hear the truth, they don't respond that way. In fact, a lot of them want to become abolitionists now in their own time, or activists to change all that. They're angry and they're stunned by what's happening and they want to change it. Maybe the parents who are worried about their kids are more worried about themselves. That somehow, the truth of racial inequality, which has helped their lives so much, white parents, is something they don't want to talk about. But crossing the color line, I want to say to you tonight, is the beginning, beginning of a journey to repent, repair, and redeem America's original sin. Crossing that line helps open up the world to us, letting us find the truth that can set us free from the bondage and baggage of white supremacy. I mean, it's just stupid bondage and baggage. It just weighs us down. It's stupid and sets us free. And it creates this whole network, creative network of caring and bonding relationships. And that will become the foundation for what at Catholic schools we call the common good. The common good will be made by breaking down these barriers and crossing these lines and building new networks. And that's a step toward this vision of the beloved community. Faith communities could play a key role here, I would say even a lead role. What if, what if faith communities, our communities of faith, were the ones to lead here, help navigate this transition to a multiracial democracy, help provide guidance, what if we were to help the nation get to a different place? Because of our faith, we would be called the peacemakers, whom Jesus called the children of God. Pretty special designation. So, this is where we're going as a nation. And I think I said to my students yesterday, um, it's your generation that's going to do this or not. 
My generation hasn't accomplished this. I read King, inspired by King. We've worked hard, continue to. But I looked at them and said, you're not truly up to all of you. You're gonna do this or not. And being skeptical of the church isn't a problem because most of my students are. They're in the fastest growing denomination in the country, which is called none of the above. They check that box, who do you want them for here? None of the above, the, the nuns, N-O-N-E-S I'm talking about here. So Teresa one day I said to, to a group, I said, I love the nuns. And I my sister said, oh, we love you too. I said, yeah, well, I love you all too, but I didn't mean those nuns. But I love those nuns because when I was out speaking really early on in our work at Sojourners, I go to these conservative places to speak. And there are two rows of nuns sitting in, up front with their, their whole regalia. And I said, sisters, why are you here? They would say, well, we're local. We said, yeah, but why are you here? Well, this is a very conservative place. We thought somebody should have your back. So I've had nuns bodyguards for years. So I love the nuns, but the, these new nuns fill my classes. And most believe in God or something beyond themselves. They're looking for something to believe in and the courage to make that belief true. So the first fierce urgency of now is right now. Three things are at stake. Democracy, which could go either way. Either way. Two, the integrity of faith. If we come down on the wrong side of this debate over democracy, we'll lose our integrity. And third, whether a new generation is ever going to show up in church. If we come down on the wrong side in our faith communities, a whole lot of you all just won't show up in church. And why should you? Why should you? So to me, when an elder once told me, who knew I was going back and forth to Detroit, he kept saying, Jim, you understand that Christianity has nothing to do with racism. That's political. Our faith is personal. <laughs> I left that night in my head and my heart, my church and my world of faith. Because the world was tearing me upside down, turning me all over the place. If that had nothing to do with my faith, then I didn't want to do that. But the words I learned later in heaven that night are these. God is personal, but never private. I believe God knows everything about everybody in this room and wants a relationship anyway. But God is, but faith is never private. And the great heresy of modern white Christianity is a privatizing of faith. So, King said, the fierce urgency of now, which means, I think, there's no time more urgent than now. It's going to be yours to decide if anybody steps up. And your being here tonight is a great encouragement to, to me. So for God's sake, for the sake of the country, the sake of democracy, the sake of our faith communities, go out and cross some lines. Thank you, and can I get an amen to that? Yeah. Thank you very much.
For more Soul of the Nation updates, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review, and follow me on Twitter at Jim Wallace if you like. Blessings for the soul of the nation. Thank you all.